I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Kirsten Brink. Kirsten, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Now, you're a paleontologist, but also the adjunct uh, curator of vertebrates at the Canadian Fossil Discovery Centre. My, that's a mouthful. Yes, yes, I am. Wonderful. Um, So what is a paleontologist to you? A paleontologist is a person who studies the history of life on Earth. So for me specifically, I'm a vertebrate paleontologist. So the work I do at the University of Manitoba and at the Canadian Fossil Discovery Center is all related to looking at fossils of vertebrates. So those are animals with backbones. And do you specialize in a a certain group of vertebrates? Uh, Not necessarily. No, I'm actually, my, my real interest is in teeth. And it's actually expanding a bit into other biomineralized tissues. So that includes bones and these uh, other bones called otoliths, which are ear bones in fish. And the cool thing about teeth and bones and otoliths is they all preserve a growth record of that particular animal, kind of like rings inside a tree. So you can get information on ages and growth rates from animals when you look at the, at these mineralized tissues. Um, so that is uh, why I, I really like uh, looking at those. Uh, it takes a lot of cutting up bones and teeth, which usually museums don't really like, but you can get a lot of really good information from the fossils that way. That's really cool. You, um, you did your degree at UBC, right? Okay, I'll start from the beginning. I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Alberta with a double major in earth sciences and biological sciences. And then I did a master's degree at the University of Calgary in the Department of Geosciences. And uh, my thesis project there was looking at growth in duck-billed dinosaurs. And then I did a PhD at the University of Toronto in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And my PhD thesis was focused on an extinct iconic animal, Dimetrodon, which a lot of people think is a dinosaur, but it was actually alive a lot earlier than the dinosaurs in the Permian. And it's an ancestor of mammals like you and I. And for that project, I really focused in on the shape of the teeth and the microstructures of the teeth. So cutting open the teeth and looking inside at the different tissue types and seeing how they were constructed. And then looking at the, how the teeth change through time within Dimetrodon to look at uh, if we could tell different species from each other or how the animal was changing as the environment was changing throughout the early Permian. So it was that interest in the teeth and the microstructures in the teeth um, that led me to do more work on some dinosaur teeth as some side projects during my PhD. But that also led to my postdoctoral position, which was a research position at UBC. And for this one, I was actually in the faculty of dentistry. So I got to work with dentists at UBC to actually learn a lot more about how teeth develop, uh, how they're structured, 
um, and specifically for reptiles and uh, extinct animals like dinosaurs and dimetrodon, um, looking at how they were able to continuously replace their teeth throughout life, which is a really cool thing that we don't think about because we're not able to do that. We only get a couple sets of teeth throughout our lifetimes. But there are lots of other animals that are able to continuously replace their teeth throughout their lives. That's really cool. That's a really specialized uh, aspect of paleontology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Um, although it, it's, if you think about it, pretty much most of the extinct animals that vertebrate paleontologists look at were able to continuously replace their teeth. So it's actually a pretty widespread thing, but not a lot of people study how they actually are able to do that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, what got you into paleontology and, and teeth? Um, I think uh, the paleontology in general, I've always been interested in uh, rocks and fossils. And uh, actually, as a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist, I thought. So I really always liked animals as well. And then going into university, I took some earth sciences courses and just realized, oh, yeah, this is super interesting. <laughs> I, I first thought I would actually be a French major in French <laughs> and then switch to the sciences after I started my undergrad. Um, so I just really love how paleontology um, combines a knowledge of animals, how animals like, grew and lived and interacted with their environments with this the deep time perspectives. So we can look at millions and millions of years of animals and how animals have changed over time. And then specifically the teeth really uh, interest me because you can learn so much information about an animal just from their teeth. Um, first of all, they're made of the densest tissues in the body. So they preserve really well in the fossil record. So a lot of the fossil record is made up of teeth. Um, and then you can figure out what an animal was eating based on the shape of their teeth. If they had flatter, smoother teeth, maybe they were eating more plants. If they had teeth with serrations on the edges, maybe they were eating more meat. So we can get an idea of how that animal lived in its environment or interacted with other animals just looking by looking at a couple of teeth. That's really cool. Yeah, that's one of the things that we um, often teach kids, or one of the first things that we teach kids is uh, to identify animal behavior based on the teeth that it has in its mouth. And in a sense, you have become um, what you dreamt of being as a kid, a, a marine biologist, just a paleomarine biologist. I know that um, most of the fossils in your collection, I believe, are marine fossils, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ever since moving to Manitoba, I, I started uh, <clears throat> at the University of Manitoba in January 2020 and at the, the CFDC. Um, and the fossil record of Manitoba uh, the, for the vertebrate fossil record is mostly marine reptiles like mosasaurs, plesiosaurs. Um, so you're absolutely right. I am working with, uh, you know, these marine animals. They're just extinct now. And uh, luckily they have really cool teeth. So I, I get to still focus in on the teeth, even though the animal is different from what I've worked on in the past. You get the marine uh, biology without the pressure of keeping them alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now. Why should people care about this research? Ah, yeah. Well, it's uh, to me, it kind of goes, you can take a tooth and you can look at it from two different perspectives. Um, one of them is that by understanding how a tooth grows or what a, a tooth is useful for, it gives you tons of information about the fossil record. So how 
Um, this is one of the questions that has always kind of driven my research is how did the planet get to be the way it is today? How did we get to be here today? How, how did the environment get set up the way that it is today? And we can only really figure that out by looking at changes in the deep time, changes in animals and the fossil record and how they've interacted with, with their environments, how ecosystems have changed over time. So uh, an understanding of, of all these changes that have happened in the past will really help to under, help us understand what, how the modern world looks, how, it's, how, it's, um, how different animals are interacting with each other today. There's a whole history to how that got to be that way. Um, and then it, the other way is, is, is looking to the future. So if we can understand these changes in the past, we can predict maybe a little bit what the planet might look like in the future. Um, a lot of the work that I've done at UBC was in, in dentistry was working uh, with living reptiles. So looking at how living reptiles are able to uh, group continuously replace their teeth. So if we can understand that, it really informs in on the fossil record. So how do we get all these different tooth types that evolved in the past? If we can understand the mechanisms in a living animal, we can apply it back to the past. And then we can also take these clues from, from the reptiles that are able to continuously replace their teeth and maybe even apply it to humans and to human dentistry. So the, the eventual goal for a lot of, of researchers who work on reptile teeth or even fish teeth or some people work on amphibian teeth is can we find a specific um, set of genes or molecules that will we can trigger to actually grow more teeth in a human. Um, it might be, you know, actually in the jaw, which would be kind of really cool. Or if we could just do it in a lab, you know, try to figure out how to grow these dental tissues to make replacement teeth for people when they lose a tooth. That's uh, a really interesting question in dental research. You sound like a Netflix saga. You're jumping into the past, into the future. Sometimes you're looking at the present. You're all, all over the place and weaving a very fascinating tale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, sometimes I do feel like I'm all over the place because I, I get distracted by interesting research questions and then I kind of follow them wherever they may go. That's uh, the same thing for my graduate students. I have uh, a handful of really great grad students and they're, all their projects are quite different from each other. I have some people um, describing uh, the anatomy of marine reptiles found in, in uh, Manitoba. Uh, another student who's looking at microfossils, which are uh, very tiny fossils of fish and marine reptiles and birds, and looking at them in a stratigraphic section. So looking at how they've changed over time uh, within Manitoba. And then I have uh, two other students who are working on geochemistry, so actually looking at chemical information that is preserved inside marine reptile teeth uh, to learn about their diets and their environments back when they were around in the Cretaceous. Um, I have other students who are working on living reptiles, so looking at bone development and the, how fast their bones were growing, looking at tooth development, um, how quickly were they able to replace their teeth uh, around the mouth. Uh, I have a, let's see, another student is working on uh, 3D modeling of a Dimetronon skull. Wow. So looking at how strong their bite would have been. Were they able to actually eat, you know, really uh, large bodied? Were they able to bite each other? Were they able to eat 
other big animals or were they eating just little amphibians that were around at the time? So yes, the research, the lab, the research in the lab is really diverse. And I think that's actually super interesting because we can all learn a lot from each other that way. Absolutely. It means that uh, what may be really challenging for one person could be super easy for another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We try to find projects that uh, suit each student's strengths so that they can you know, really dig in and, and get some really cool results. Whenever I see a Demetrodon, I always think, my, what big teeth you have, grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's excellent. <laughs> For those listening uh, who don't know what they look like, they look like uh, crocodiles with a, a giant sail on the back of their, uh, well, on the back of their back. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, that's where we come from. <laughs> You mentioned your grad students. Um, I'm always curious, what do you look for when you're recruiting grad students? I'm looking uh, for grad students. I'm looking for people who are super curious about something, who have uh, an interest in some kind of a research question. And then somebody who also has a couple of ideas on how to actually test that research question or get an answer to their research question. So somebody who's really curious and somebody who's willing to try different things and not worry too much about failing because there can be some, you know, attempts at certain modeling techniques or certain geochemical techniques that just don't work on their samples. So being able to pivot and try something else in order to get to, to an answer to their research question. That's the kind of people I look for. I feel like from what I've heard from our grad students that you spend a lot of time pivoting. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, one of your students recently discovered something, right? A giant marine reptile? Mm. So I have um, one of my undergrad students was actually describing the skeleton of a plesiosaur. That's a marine mm. reptile with a really long neck. Um, the specimen was actually collected in 2004 by a crew. Well, actually, it was over a couple of years Uh, by a crew at the Canadian Fossil Discovery Centre. And it's a really cool specimen because it has uh, gut contents in it. So it has the last meal of that plesiosaurus preserved in the gut. Um, So we were able to uh, not only describe the bones to figure out if it's a new species of marine reptile, but also figure out what it it ate for its last meal. Looks like it was just a whole lot of fish, (laughs) a lot of fish scales and fish teeth in that gut. I always say that they're the most polite of all ancient organisms. Why? Because they always say, please, yes, or. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and what about yourself? Have you made any discoveries that you care to share? Um, so I am still finishing up some of the work that I was working on when I was at UBC, some of the, the reptile tooth work. Um, some of the cool stuff that we were able to do while I was there is actually pluck out the teeth of uh, these leopard geckos that we have living at UBC. And then because they're able to constantly regrow their teeth, we wanted to see how fast they would be able to regrow them. And they also have a very specific pattern to their teeth. It's like an alternating pattern that sort of travels in waves around the mouth. That's the way that the, the teeth get replaced. So when we did these, these uh, tooth plucking experiments, we found that um, the pattern reestablished itself almost after, uh, I think, two months, um, closer to three months, the pattern reestablished itself. So we're trying to figure out exactly, are the teeth talking to each other some way? There's some molecules or something, some signal maybe that is 
um, passing around in between these different teeth or in between the developing teeth that help to establish this pattern. Um, so that's one thing that we're, we're still working on is figuring out how this pattern was able to reestablish itself. Um, another thing we, we found is that uh, it was thought that the teeth were, were constantly falling out because maybe they were getting worn down too low or a tooth was broken. Um, another tooth would pop out and replace it really quickly. But actually, it's, it's more of a, uh, a schedule. So even if a tooth falls out earlier than expected, the next tooth will still pop up on schedule. Mm. So there's a lot of, you know, genetic information, genetic or molecular controls that are uh, working to establish and to maintain this very specific tooth replacement pattern. So that's some, some ongoing work. Wow. And what about your new projects uh, since you've arrived in Manitoba? Yeah. So the, the new stuff is, it is focusing, like I mentioned already, towards uh, the fossil record of Manitoba. So a lot of marine reptile stuff. Now, one of the other interesting projects that sort of came up um, is looking at otoliths. So those are the, the fish ear bones. Um, and I have a student who's really interested in um, environmental impact, the human's environmental impact on the waterways in Winnipeg. Um, so we were able to collect some fish from local fishermen in the Red River and have a look at the otoliths. And this is a project that I'm doing with some of the other geologists in the department as well as the student and uh, looking to see if we can find any contaminants inside those otoliths because they preserve a growth record for the whole fish. So we can get some fish that are up to 20 years old. So we have a record of what, what the water quality was like for the past 20 years. Um, so looking for contaminants and then looking to see if um, there's a, a lot of flooding that happens in Manitoba in the spring and seeing if any of those flood years correspond to an increase in contaminants in the fish. So that's uh, uh, the project that we're, 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 we're trying. We're, try we're trying to see if we can find evidence of the contaminants. Uh, we're also using um, a really... Um, well, it's not a new type of microscopy. It's called transmission electron microscopy. It's actually pretty common, but not a lot of people have used it to look at contaminant incorporation inside the otoliths. So we're giving that a try as well. So to see if we can you know, sort of pinpoint exactly how the contaminants are getting incorporated into uh, the microstructures of the otoliths. That's really unexpected. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I have to admit you and another paleontologist here at UBC were part of the inspiration for this podcast, uh, just because you've got such cool stories and people think, we all think that we know what a paleontologist does. They do Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> and then you start talking about otoliths and the future of human teeth and you're just a scientific freak and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that's probably one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. <laughs> you are clearly really passionate about your work. Uh, but what's the best part of your work? Um, I think the best part of my work is I'm able to explore all of these different topics. Um, every day is kind of a you know, a new discussion with a new person who's working on a new project. And I get to learn so much. Like now my, my students are teaching me so much about every, everything that they're working on. And it's just great to hear from them and to hear what new discoveries they're making. I just love that part of it. 
And I love how, you know, my interest in, in growth marks in teeth or growth marks in bone led to a project looking at growth marks in fish ear bones and then actually having an environmental component to it in modern day ecosystems. Like I, I just like how we're able to, in working at a university and being adjunct at a museum, you get so many opportunities to collaborate and just like work on all these different research projects. I think that's super cool. At times it must be hard to even say no or just focus in on one project at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You have to sort of switch your brain. Okay, what am I thinking about today? Okay, lizards. Oh, okay. Oh, now I'm thinking about Dimetrodon 3D modeling. Okay. So <laughs> but it's, uh, it's always worth it. Good. Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, we all have bad days. What is the worst part or, or the most challenging part of your work? Um, I, it might also be what I just answered is, you know, trying to, because I am kind of involved in so many different types of research is trying to keep on top of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another reason why the students are able to teach me so much. So yeah, just making sure that, um, if an experiment or a technique or something doesn't work out, you know, how can we pivot? Uh, how can we still you know, collect some interesting data or address an interesting research question. Um, there's always risks involved, but I think that's a big part of science, you know, failure, which is actually, I don't think people talk about how much they fail in science (laughs) as much as they should. Um, but that's like a huge part of it. And it actually, it makes for better results in the end. Uh, once you get past those, those failures. You really are a true paleontologist. Uh, your answer is trying to keep it, uh, keep up with it all. And, (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, just focusing in on on doing the, the tasks. I know so many museums where paleontologists had collected tons and tons and tons of stuff and then said, oh, I'll, I'll catalog and study it later. And they never do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's actually uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to work with the Canadian Fossil Discovery Centre is they've actually been around, they just had their 50th anniversary um, so they've been collecting fossils in the, the around the Morden area, which is about hour and a half outside of Winnipeg um, for over 50 years. They have a huge collection. They actually have um, the world. Well, it was the world's largest Mosasaur on display, Bruce. But I think there might be a bigger one on display in the States now. But oh. it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the largest uh, Mosasaur on display. Definitely the largest in Canada. Um, so the museum is actually really fabulous and they have really great fossil collection, but nobody's really been working on it for these past 50 years. There've been a few people off and on. So I'm really excited to get some graduate students and myself into that collection and, and, uh, starting to work through it. Absolutely. And just for reference, I always describe mosasaurs as looking like, uh, crocodiles on steroids. Yep, exactly. <laughs> a crocodile with, uh, flippers and, uh, yeah, like maybe even more ferocious, if I could say. They're, <laughs> they're, pr- they're pretty big, pretty big beasts. Mm-hmm. Are there any small ones? Yes, there are some smaller mosasaurs. I think the, the fossils of those, there's more of them in Saskatchewan and Alberta than in Manitoba. Good. Well, talking about diversity of mosasaurs, <laughs> I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your studies or your career? Um, well, I, I am a, a woman in science and I think being in the geological sciences has traditionally been dominated by, uh, males, white males, 
But um, I went to a Society of Vertebrate Paleontology conference this a few months ago, and just looking around at all the students, there's a huge diversity of students uh, nowadays. And I think that's that's true for um, most fields of science as we're starting to get a lot more uh, diversity in, especially among the graduate students. So it's the, the tricky part is keeping them in academia if they want a career in academia, is trying to get all this diversity of people up through all the levels in universities and in museums as well. Um, so I think uh, I've, I've always been pretty well supported throughout my career. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just happy to see that diversity is improving with the next generations. That's great. That's a really hopeful message. Um, but also I'm sure uh, you were well supported because you are well loved and uh, missed <laughs> here at UBC. Oh, thank you. <laughs> at, at least partially, part of the reason. <laughs> oh, I miss you guys too. <laughs> Turning from such a happy topic, let's talk about something a little less uh, enjoyable. Um, how did COVID-19 affect your work or did it at all? It did because I, I started as an assistant professor in January 2020. So I moved to Winnipeg and just got settled in and just started teaching. And then suddenly everything was shut down. So it was pretty rough trying to get the lab set up and just you know purchasing equipment was difficult meeting my colleagues was difficult because there were no more social events, really. Um, I felt really bad for all the graduate students who had just started or started during the pandemic. They had sort of a very different grad school experience than, um, you know, me or anybody in you know my cohort. Just, you know, not being able to go to a conference or not being able to travel to another museum to collect data we sort of had to design the projects in different ways so that they could finish it during the global pandemic. So I think, yeah, things were a little bit slow to get started. My grad students persevered and did an excellent job. And the lab is starting to get up and running now. So um, yeah, it was a little bit slower than, than normal, but uh, I think everything's on is getting on track. Excellent. I'm glad it wasn't too, too traumatic. Um, moving to Winnipeg in January might've been a bit of a shock as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes, especially coming from Vancouver. The, it was it was very, very cold when I got here. And yeah, but I, I adjusted. Wonderful. You are very inspiring. Um, and if you've inspired anyone to go into paleontology, uh, what courses or experience or background would you recommend they pursue in order to become the next Kirsten Brink? <laughs> well, there's there's the advice I give is, to kind of figure out what part or what side of paleontology you like. And, mm -hmm. and by that, I mean, there are people that come to paleontology from a biological background. So they know more about animals or evolution and development. And then there are people that come to paleontology from a geology background. So they know more about the rocks. They know more about how to interpret an environment based on the type of rocks that were there and what types of animals lived in different environments. So um, for me, that's why I did a double major so I could get some of that geology information and some of the biology information. Um, but yeah, there are some paleontologists who, you know, focus only on the animals or only on the bones or different analyses that are more biological in nature. And there are some that focus in more on the rock types or how the rocks are changing through time or how a fossil gets preserved um, and those types of research questions. So yeah, and I think it also depends on which university you're at, if there is a paleontology program or if there is a geology or biology program, maybe a good mixture of, of those courses. That's a great answer. 
like you said, it, it's a broad field. So there are so many uh, ways to go about it. Mm-hmm. For yourself, what would you say was the pivotal course that changed your tra- trajectory? <laughs> Uh, the pivotal course was this, um, first year historical geology course at the university of Alberta. It was, um, sort of how the planet has changed through time and then how different animals changed through time. And I remember just loving, loving going to that course and I couldn't wait to, it was, you know, one of my favorites. And, uh, I, luckily enough, I'm actually teaching a very similar course to that starting in January. Um, so it's, yeah. How, how did the planet form? Um, how has it changed over time? And then how have animals uh, changed as the planet was changing? So I'm really excited to get to hopefully, you know, inspire some future geologists or biologists or paleontologists here when they take that course. Well, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> I was going to say you are very inspiring. Um, you inspired me. Uh, you used to actually run our fossil collection as a volunteer um, here at the museum, and you inspired me to learn more about paleontology and do more outreach. Uh, but who inspired you while you were going through your uh, schooling? I know that mm-hmm. a PhD and a postdoc can be quite grueling. Uh, it takes a village. <laughs> and um, yeah, who were your village? Uh, yeah, like like you said, it was a village. There are definitely um, uh, many supervisors who were willing to uh, take me on and, and teach me. Like I actually started as an undergraduate working on uh, fossil plants. Um, so having a, just a really supportive supervisor at the time who, you know, I, I actually, I didn't really do that well in the paleobotany course, I will say. Um, but I think because I was interested, really interested in the research and I really loved doing the research, um, that kind of you know, led the supervisors to, to keep me on and to keep teaching me. Um, and then, uh, I'll have to say it's, it's my colleagues. So like all the, the grad students that I graduated with and worked with in the labs, they're all very inspiring because everybody is so passionate about their particular project they're working on. So just being able to feed off of other people that you're sitting in a little, you know, tiny cubicle next to for so many years, um, being able to, uh, you know, feed off of all their energy and work on projects together was a huge inspiration for me. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's amazing when you have just that supportive workplace and um, it makes the world of difference. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, I was talking before about how you tend to jump around looking in the past and the future and today. Uh, I want you to look to the future. Um, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire, if you ever retire? <laughs> Yeah, a lot of profs don't seem to retire, do they? <laughs> and that, I think that, yeah, that just speaks to how passionate a lot of professors can get about their research. But yeah, a, a legacy, I don't know. I mean, I would like people to look at my career and say, wow, that was really, there's a lot of variety in that uh, career. I don't know. That's a, a great question. I, I I think it's, I mean, you've already flattered me by saying I've been inspiring. And I think that's, that's pretty great. If I can inspire other people to get into the sciences and to, you know, really follow up research questions that they're super interested in. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's good enough for me. Wonderful. Well, I, th- I think uh, you're, you're doing it. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> for my final question, again, I'd like you to look to the future. 
Uh, our world is changing at lightning speed, and I don't mean climate change. I mean how we process and understand it. Um, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time they retire. I'm sure you've already seen uh, huge changes in paleontology, uh, despite being very uh, young in your career. Where do you see paleontology going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? Mm -hmm. So I think paleontology has sometimes been described as like a stamp collecting science where you just find bones and you describe them and you put them in a museum and that's it. But um, there's so many different analyses now that people are using on fossils, like analyses that people use on living animals and living tissue, like um, a lot of the geochemical analyses or elemental analyses is being used quite a bit more in paleontology, the 3D modeling to look at how these animals actually moved around or how, you know, what capabilities did they have when they were eating. So I think it's, it's moving away from strictly stamp collecting. I mean, there will always be new discoveries and there's always a need to describe new fossils that are found. Um, but applying all of these new techniques to study the fossil record, we can ask a lot more interesting questions, which I think is very cool. And then just uh, having a better understanding of how the earth has changed uh, has really big impact on, you know, how we're handling the changes on the earth right now. These, like you said, these lightning speed, rapid changes, um, you know, we're able to, you know, do science a lot faster now and to publish science a lot more quickly as well, which I think is really good, especially during the pandemic. Um, and just uh, being able to harness that speed, but I mean, also you, you want to do a good job on your, on the science, right? But being able to harness all of these new technologies to be able to share the information really quickly, uh, I think that's that's super important, especially when we're we're thinking about uh, climate change and stuff like that. Sounds like you're describing a splintering of the field, which used to be fairly monolithic, uh, but in a good way. Oh yeah, I think I don't know if it's a splintering. I think it's more of a maybe just pulling a lot of different fields of sciences together. Mm -hmm. to address uh, different questions in paleontology. Right, right. Well, I hope that comes to pass. <laughs> yeah, me too. It sounds way more exciting than just, as you say, stamp collecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kirsten, those are all the questions I had for you today. Is there anything I left out or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, no, I think that was it. I had a really nice time chatting with you today. Me too. It's been nice to catch up. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing your passion, um, your unique perspectives. Thanks for all the work you did here at the PME. It's always appreciated. Oh, oh you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, I hope that one day we won't need dentures because of you. <laughs> That'd be really great. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson and Ollie Beattie designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.